Welcome back to Let's Talk About Skills, Baby, the podcast where we discover what skills can help you live your best life. I am your host, Kelly Ryan Bailey, and each week I chat with inspiring visionaries about the skills that make them successful. You'll get a firsthand account of how they develop those skills, as well as their innovative approaches to improving skills-based hiring and learning around the world. Now, let's talk about skills, baby. We're joined this week by Matt Gee. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Kelly. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. Well, let me introduce everyone to Matt. Matt Gee is an entrepreneur, data scientist, and researcher. He's the co-founder and CEO of BrightHive, a public benefit corporation building data collaboratives and data trusts that increase economic mobility. He is also a data and society fellow at the University of Chicago's Knowledge Lab. He was the co-founder of Data Science for Social Good, which has paired over 500 data science fellows with over 150 national, state, and local government organizations and NGOs to build data-driven solutions to social sector challenges. Matt's work has focused on finding new ways to increase individual efficacy and equality of opportunity through the creation of new linked data and application of new tools like AI and machine learning to societal problems. This is so great, Matt. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey. What led you to starting BrightHive? Oh, sure. Well, first, it's such a pleasure to be on this podcast. Kelly, you are such an inspiration and always a pleasure to talk to. So I'm glad we get to spend this time today together. You know, I'm just a, you know, your friendly neighborhood data nerd. I think I'm more of a kind of data diplomat by disposition. And in my daily work, I think I find myself often as kind of a type of data hostage negotiator because the way that I, I see the world is one where you know, there's so much untapped potential in figuring out what questions we can answer, what problems we can solve, what kind of value we can generate from society. If we can just figure out how the data that you've got and the data that I've got can be responsibly combined. And for me, the kind of epiphany that led me on that journey started actually when I was just uh, my first job out of undergrad when I was at the US Treasury during the credit crisis from 2007 Mm -hmm. to 2010. I saw firsthand the enormous benefit that can happen when you have a data literate person in public service that could talk to computers and not just gesture at them, really trying to help rebuild systems that were clearly broken, like the system we were using to see which banks were screwing over people for loans, but also how out of whack society had gotten with this kind of major power imbalance around data as the fuel of this really valuable asset. And I remember one meeting I was in where it was me and one other person from the treasury kind of representing the people. And on the other side of the table were 30 PhDs in astrophysics and statistics that were representing the banks. And that moment for me was kind of my call to action. It felt like, oh, wow, my profession, so many of my friends were just optimizing ad clicks all day for Facebook mm-hmm. and that had the same skills. And I, I wanted to figure out how we could get more data folk focusing on really critical problems like how do we make it easier for someone who's unemployed to get reemployed? How do we help them find the skills that will help them increase their economic mobility and, and opportunity? How do we help them express in language that employers will, will really understand and resonate with their, their own capabilities, knowledge, skills, and abilities? 
all of those problems were were problems that data folks could be working on, but mm-hmm. instead they were just trying to get folks to click on mortgage ads. And so for me, it was, it felt like a moral calling at that point in time. And I had the luck of being at University of Chicago at the right time, meeting up with someone who's now a really close friend, a guy named Ray Ghani, who was at the time the chief scientist for the Obama campaign. And we started talking about how we get more data scientists working on things like skills data. And we were lucky enough to get some funding from a guy named Eric Schmidt to start a program called Data Science for Social Good. And that was actually when I got the skills data bug because (laughs) I was talking with a bunch of different folks at the Department of Labor about one of the most valuable data sets that the Department of Labor puts out, this data set called ONET that has this knowledge, skills, and ability for a bunch of different occupations across the U.S. economy, and them sharing some of their challenges and frustrations in managing, maintaining that data, wishing there were better ways to tap into the massive troves of data that are housed by private entities and and online platforms to make that data more up-to-date and more dynamic and make it feel more like a national weather system of skills data. And in that very first year, that's when realizing that problem, that problem of figuring out how to combine these private sources of data and these public sources of data to create better, more openly available national skills data utilities. I got the bug then and it's it's been with me ever since. Now, I know you don't work only with skills data, but as long as I've known you, you definitely seem to have an affinity towards it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I think a lot about the problem of in today's society, we've got a bunch of things that should be happening with data that aren't. And a bunch of things that shouldn't be happening with our data that are happening all the time. Mm -hmm. And we've got to renegotiate the social contract around data. And I actually think it starts with skills data because skills data, right, is we think about it, skills are our most valuable personal assets. They're with us all the time. We don't lose them if we go bankrupt, right? We're all kind of 1960s Batman, right, with our (laughs) utility belt around us. Yes. Uh, and yet, and, and we've got that, right? We've got the skills utility belt. And yet when we think about how we prove the things that are in that skills utility belt, the wacky thing is that we have to pay other people for access to that data. I have to pay my university to give me kind of a verification that yes, I got a degree that has the, you know, these following certificates and skills just to prove that I know those things. And major online platforms that I volunteer to put my data in. They own that data, not me, right? They're the ones making money off of it. I'm not. And I mean, imagine if 1960s Batman had to kind of pay Alfred every time he wanted to take something out of his utility belt and and use it to fight crime. It's just crazy. So I think skills data is, it's incredibly valuable. It's also incredibly disconnected and inequitably distributed and inequitably accessible. And so I think if we can fix the dynamics around skills data, we can fix it around a bunch of other things. So true. I love your analogy with Batman because I was actually reading something the other day that was just talking about superpowers of, if you've read some of the old comic books, I was a big comic book fan growing up. And the ones that you didn't know, like not Superman, it was like the wasp and like those, they always had to describe their superpowers because people were like, who are you? (laughs) And it's the hardest thing, right? To describe, like if you're not Batman, everybody knows, but it was funny when put in the context of skills, how 
to try to describe something when you're not Batman or Superman is so difficult. Yes. And it makes me think of, we've been doing some great work with the Rework America Alliance. I mean, we're having a set of conversations, this work group that has been engaged with a lot of the career counselors that work on the ground in great networks like the Unidos Network and the National Urban League Network and, and the Goodwill Network. And we were talking about the aha moments that they create for the people that walk in the door. Yeah. And one of the first most important aha moments that those career counselors create is just helping an individual realize they've got more skills than they may have even known they had and equipping them with the ability and the language to describe those skills in, in a way that that will really resonate with employers. That to me is is that kind of what what is your superpower problem? Right. I, I, I love all of these it seems like you know, every CW superhero show is kind of a, the the canonical first episode right. when the superhero first discovers they have superpowers. Yes, yeah. Right? And, and we've got people every day who are working to help folks discover their superpowers. Right? These, these folks in a Goodwill Center, I, I think that is some of the coolest work that's happening right now. And it's also so unheralded. So right. I was just going to say that like they're superheroes in and of themselves, you know, just yes. to be there with those people to help them. And actually you're just making me think ahead that, you know, it's funny when you introduced yourself and you said your friendly neighborhood data geek, it's so funny how the majority of people might be intimidated by that. But when you break it down to something that actually has to do with your everyday life and you can explain it through the education that you've had through the work experiences that you had. And in many cases through the life experiences that you've had, and you can make that real for someone that's a big deal. And, and I think that's, what's so exciting about skills to me is that we tend to think of it as like, oh my gosh, data, but it's not that. <laughs> it's stories. Data is most powerful when it just, it helps us tell better stories to each other. And I think one of the most important stories we can tell about ourselves is this is what I know. This is what I'm capable of. This is what we can do together. And that's right. a story of, uh, that's a story of skills. That's a story of experience. And I feel like we'll be successful in, in the work that we do. If ultimately we help unlock just a little bit more information that helps each individual better tell their own story yeah. and have yeah. control over their own story. I think that's a really important aspect of this is that liberating skills data right, is a key part of helping everyone have more kind of direct saying control over, over their own stories. So true. And when you say liberating skills data, I know a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are likely, you know, working with us on projects, practitioners in the, in this space, but just to be clear, I mean, I think that you're saying, you know, there is a lot of data that's being held in a proprietary way by many organizations. Is that what you mean when you say liberate skills data? Yeah, I, I look at great projects like the work that the all the different members of the T3 Innovation Network have been doing. This is a, a network, an innovation network run out of the US Chamber of Commerce where a bunch of folks got together and said, if we want the learner and worker to be kind of at the center of a, a new skills-based kind of labor market and learning ecosystem, one of the ways we empower that individual learner and worker is by empowering them with their own data, with their own educational records, their own work records that kind of, I think at MZ, you guys often talk about these kind of skills clusters or yeah. you know, skills groupings. Skills portfolio is something that 
every person should have ownership over and control and be able to carry with them just like you carry your wallet. And we don't have that, but folks are working on that. And I think that ability for the digital expression of your skills to be something that you actually own and control and can move around is, I think, potentially one of the biggest innovations of the next couple of years. And so that that work of creating these portable learning and employment records is, I think, one of the ways that we liberate skills data. We put it in the hands of, of each individual learner and worker. Well, now that you mentioned one of the most important innovations, I'll mention another one because I read an article recently that data trust was listed as one of the most important recent innovations. <laughs> and obviously that is what you do. Did you always know you wanted to, to be an entrepreneur to start a business around this? Or did you try to figure out something before you went that route? You know, that's fine. I, I did not know I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I discovered it halfway into my PhD. I'm a PhD dropout. Um, that's a, <laughs> an important thing. I discovered that I loved knowledge work and I loved creating new ideas, but mm-hmm. I, I loved even more turning those ideas into action. And I caught the entrepreneurial bug while I was in, in the middle of my PhD program. I hopped over to the business school at University of Chicago and started going to these entrepreneurial classes and pitch competitions and all that. And for me, I, I felt an energy there that I, don't know, I just felt more at home. But I, I always felt like where I could contribute to the world the most with an entrepreneurial mindset is bringing some of these newer ideas from academia that were really well thought out, but were still just things on paper, figuring out how to make them work in the real world. And one of those ideas a number of years ago was the set of ideas around different ways of organizing, controlling, and governing our data, our shared data, this, this notion of, of a data trust. And it's a great idea, right? I want to make clear, it's not my idea, right? Uh, a number of ac- academics came up with it first, but we wanted to do some of the first work figuring out how to make it happen in the real world. And the core of the idea is, is simply this, that data is something that an individual company may you know, have in their database, but it's actually about you. And so the question we've been grappling with society is like, if data is about you, is it your data or is it their data? What, what are their responsibilities to you? And then importantly, your data is not just in one company's database or one government agency's database. It's in several government agency databases and, and companies' databases. The question is, how do they relate to each other, right? If they all have data on Kelly Bailey, what is their responsibility to you? What is your responsibility in deciding what can and can't happen with that data? And that societal contract around data hasn't been fully worked out yet. But one way of treating it differently is thinking about data as a, a shared asset and establishing putting a a trust around it and saying, we're going to govern this together. We're going to put some limits, some Mm -hmm. ethical limits around what can can and can't be done. We're going to require auditing of some of the AI algorithms that are being used where that this data is fueling and wrapping all of those key things around responsible data use into a structure that works. It's where kind of data and society meet. And that's what a data trust is. And we've been lucky enough to work with some really innovative folks over the last few years who've been willing to try that out, right? To, to wow. put a data trust into practice. Some of the folks I, I most admire are innovators within government who've been willing to step mm-hmm. into that. So mm-hmm. the state of Colorado is one of the first states, they're an incredibly innovative state to say, we wanna try this out. We want to work together and work with you at Bright Hive 
to establish data trust among several key agencies that were all working with and helping to support individuals who are out of work, high school students that were moving into kind of uh, post-secondary or workforce pathways or military pathways and figure out how that their disparate data could be combined but governed in a way that was responsible, that was serving those people's needs and, and had the right limits around it. Mm-hmm. And so helping the state of Colorado set up their data trust and see it really start to serve Coloradans has been one of the most rewarding things that I've had the privilege of kind of seeing and being part of the last few years. Wow. So what are some of the benefits you've started to see in a state like Colorado for people? Yeah. So going back to the, you know, the story we talked about with Goodwill and Unidos and career counselors that are helping folks discover their own skill superpowers, that's really important work. And it's also really hard to scale that up to millions of people at once because those conversations happen kind of on an individual by individual basis. I was talking with one team that said, we have on average in peak time, seven minutes per person that comes in the door. Wow. to help them, you know, seven minutes to help you discover that your superpowers, right? <laughs> Crazy, right? But that that's so that they can serve everyone who needs it. And there's right. still only maybe, you know, tens of thousands over the, the course of the year. And we have millions of folks who need that help, right? And so we've got to figure out how to help more folks digitally discover their skill superpowers. And the state of Colorado realized that a few years ago. They realized they could build a free public capability to help each individual discover their own skill strengths and and map out their own journey. Mm-hmm. But to do this, they're going to need a great technology partner to help them build out that skills navigation experience. Right. And they're going to have to figure out how all the different data sets necessary to map out those journeys could come together mm-hmm. and and support those decisions. That was the first driving purpose for them setting up a data trust was to support an an application, a free application built by a company called Perrin with the state of Colorado called My Colorado Journey. Yep. And it's already been used by and helped tens of thousands of -of out-of-work Coloradans since its launch. But the really exciting thing that, that happens is once you set up that container, we were actually just on a call yesterday where the great innovators at the state and the, the partners that they've brought together are already thinking about, all right, what can we do next? How can we support more folks? What are the key insights that each individual needs more depth on? And what are the additional you know, data sets that can be brought together to support those individuals? So seeing that kind of innovation flywheel get going is, I think, one of the coolest things. It sounds like when I make the comparison from the way you described getting your entrepreneur bug... <laughs> to the way you just described this sort of like innovation, you know, getting the innovation wheel going, it actually reminded me that when you get it and you start to see that you're helping people, all of that, it's uh, something that it's hard to stop, which is really exciting for states. And it's amazing that they started this pre-COVID because there's so many regions and states that had not necessarily considered these pieces before we had such large unemployment numbers. Are you seeing a lot of the same type of innovation happening more broadly now? Yeah, COVID has been just a, it it has shifted so much in our society. And one of those shifts has been a real reckoning with government agencies in realizing kind of the the cracks in, in a system that they, for better or for worse, had to figure out ways of papering over just to make work. But, you know, the fact that we didn't really have 
an unemployment insurance system that worked for part-time workers in the gig economy, yeah. right? And, and we had to figure out very, very rapidly how to set that up. And states had to figure out a way to get millions of dollars of aid out to folks for the first time for a class of worker that we didn't have any way of really supporting in the past. Yeah. I read somewhere one in four American workers have relied on unemployment aid during this pandemic at some point in time, one in wow. four. Wow. And just about all that money has had to flow through these state systems. And there's been just amazing Herculean work by teams figuring out how to stand it up quickly. I, I think of, there's this great nonprofit called Ripple, uh, Research Improving People's Lives. And they worked with the state of Rhode Island to spin up a system in just a, in a few weeks wow. that could get these checks out to these part-time workers, right? These gig economy workers that, that were now unemployed. But every state has had to clutch together a system to do that. And I think now there's a realization that we've got some systemic things we got to fix. Yeah, I hear that. So I know it, that you love helping people, which is so fantastic. So I want to lean back into your, the personal side of your story for a moment. You had mentioned this entrepreneurial mindset, but it was fascinating to me that you had this sort of academic background on one hand and then decided to make this shift. And I feel like a lot of people right now are in a place where they may be trying to figure out their own transition. And so I'd love to hear what's your superpower belt? <laughs> what's, what are your things in your belt? And also when you make that comparison for people that are trying to decide, do I continue education versus do I potentially take this other route? How, you know, was there something in that, in your experience that you can share with others that could help them? Oh, goodness. Yeah. I think one thing I realized about myself that the not unique, but relatively novel combination that I've cultivated in my life and or part of which I was born with is the ability to see connection. And it just so happens that my particular kind of journey through learning meant that I, I saw two groupings of connections, the ability to kind of connect people with similar interests mm -hmm. and data with uh, similar kind of meaning. Mm -hmm. And and that in connecting kind of people and data and people with data, I could create a lot of new knowledge and new value. And I initially thought that, okay, the best place for me to do that would be in academia. Mm -hmm. Academia is all about creating novel connections between two ideas to create kind of your own new idea. But when I was in the middle of grad school, I was looking out and seeing increasingly just the, the knowledge economy didn't have academia and the connections that were ma being made in academia as the, the most impactful, at least near-term or medium-term mm -hmm. connections being made. But there was those high-value connections were happening outside of academia. They were new and novel combinations of people and data that were creating new companies, that were solving new problems, building new public utilities. And I realized for me, I really wanted to have impacts in the short and medium term and that the potential for impacts in academia were tended to be more longer term impacts. And so maybe it's just because I was impatient or I had a short, short attention span. So I decided, great, I know I'm good at connecting people and data. Let me do that as an entrepreneur and build a business around that rather than within an academic institution. So what can other people learn from that? One is just discovering and starting to be able to, through self-reflection and conversations with your friends and mentors, having kind of a mirror held up to you to help you identify and name those tool belt skills. And then, you know, asking yourself hard questions about what matters most to you on what time horizon. Do you want to change the world and you're okay if 
you're a kind of Van Gogh tragic figure where no one recognizes you now, but in a hundred years, everyone's going to be praising your name. Or do you, you know, want to see something change tomorrow? And are you looking to affect entire systems or individual people's lives? You know, where do you get your energy? And then, you know, with that self-reflection about your tool belt, what really drives you? And lastly, I think it's really important to look out at the market and say, what's changing? Lift up just a little bit, get good advice about where things are headed so that you can say, all right, there's going to be this trend. For me, it was just trends in, in data as an emerging area of kind of power, influence, and, and also kind of societal conflict. And where that conversation was happening, it was happening outside of academia, not, not as much in it, that allowed me to say, okay, that's where the puck is headed. I'm going to skate to there, you know, figure out your tool belt, figure out really what motivates you and brings you energy on a, a daily basis. And then if you have the luxury seed, just you know, a little more than six months ahead and say, yeah. where might things be going? I recognize that I am also talking about this from a place of extraordinary privilege. Like I was in grad school and had all the time in the world to think about these things. And if you are one of those 10 million people that are unemployed right now looking for work, all three of those things feel like luxuries. But one of the things that I think I'm really encouraged about talking with folks who are serving the unemployed every day and supporting them and helping them through the work that we do, this new crop of digital tools that are coming out are intended to provide at least some of those three things to you, yeah. right? That to a much broader set of folks who don't need to think about it for two years in order, like I did, you know, to decide what's next. They, they can help you figure out your tool belt faster, certainly yep. faster than it took me, and also help you see where the things are headed, what skills yep. are going to be in demand in, in six months, which ones might be kind of you know, sunsetting in terms of their relative importance. And I think that's one of the most valuable things that, again, liberating skills data can do. If we can provide everyone with that level of insight into themselves and the market, then we'll end up with a lot more folks, not just gainfully employed, but loving what they do and able to adapt to changes as they come. That is some wonderful information to offer. And, and I agree with you too. I understand that, you know, not everyone is at that place right now, but the great thing that Matt just mentioned with these new tools that are coming is that you can start to think through all of those skills you're gaining and whatever opportunities and whatever life experiences you're having and how that can help you navigate to the next step, even if it's not the step you want to take right now. Right. So last question for you, Matt. So I know we've been, you know, talking a little bit about you personally, which thank you so much for sharing with us, but just to end for our listeners, before I tell them where to find all the information about Bright Hive and all that good stuff, we'll end on the personal note for a moment, which is just what can people do in their daily lives to continue to grow besides understanding what's in their tool belt? Uh, this is going to be an, maybe an odd thing, but I think it's actually really important and that is you should know and, and demand that the data about you and your skills is yours. Ask for it, get it, and ask more of the companies you work for, the institutions you go to for training and education, and of your state governments, national governments, that your skills data is yours. Because I think that will help each individual right? Definitely. And I think it will help each individual be part of and contribute to a necessary shift in society, which is 
that if we're going to create a more connected, participatory, and equitable digital economy, it's going to start with each of us expecting more of data about us and mm -hmm. about our skills. So I think don't put up with crappy digital experiences. Don't put up with you know having to pay for access to your own data. Right? This is this is yours. They are your skills. It's part of your tool belt. You should be able to have it on you at all times and you should be able to build it and grow it everything that you say about what's digitally in your skill portfolio so i think that'll help both you and it'll help make a, a critical change in society that is such great advice i'm just going to add one thing to that for anyone that's like why why would we ask for this think of it like your medical records right i mean like you wouldn't just be like oh i can't have access to my medical records this is you right like i've on my iphone apple worked it out and a bunch of hospital systems and other folks worked out so that i can have my medical records on me i can know more about myself my health what's going well and what's not i don't have that for skills no and that is a shame every single one of us should have that until we do, I'm going to keep beating this drum. I love it. I'll keep beating it with you. Sounds good. <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Matt. I also want to encourage anyone that may be interested in pulling together collaborations where data is of utmost importance, especially from a work and learn perspective to contact Bright Hive Data Trust. It's such an important aspect and Bright Hive does it really, really well. You can find Bright Hive at brighthive.io, also on all of the socials as well. And I encourage you to touch base with Matt. He is on LinkedIn and Twitter at Matthew Gee. But I, we were just chatting that Clubhouse is kind of his new favorite hangout. Uh, so he's there at Matt Gee. And I do agree. It's a fun spot if anyone is on Clubhouse to go in and check that out. And maybe we can continue this discussion at some point. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much, Kelly. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Skills, Baby, a Growth Network podcast production. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your community. Ratings, reviews, and suggestions are great sources of feedback and always appreciated. And please reach out and connect with me on social at Kelly Ryan Bailey. I'd love to meet you and continue the conversation. We'll be back next week with a new episode. So until then, keep growing your skills and have a great day.